0: welcome everybody to the latest edition of the pound for pound podcast this is your host the og rob Sower. and today we will talk about virgil ortiz's victory over michael mckinson saturday night in texas we will do another extended q a session answering questions from some of the great listeners out there of the pound for pound podcast and We will end the podcast with another installment of my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years. My number 28 being the Mexican icon, the Mexican legend, the most popular boxer in the history of the great country of Mexico, and that is El Gran Campeon Julio Cesar Chavez. So let's go to saturday first real quick impressive victories by blair cobb saturday night on the undercard of the virgil ortiz michael mckinson fight and across the pond great comeback win after almost getting his career ended in his knockout loss to lee wood michael collin comes back bounces back and boxes beautifully to a 10 round decision over Miguel Mariaga. It was the perfect guy to put Colin in Mariaga, uh, a workhorse, a trial horse in the featherweight division. He's he fought damn near everybody and has yet to win a major fight against guys like uh, Nicholas Waters from years ago, Vasila Lomachenko, Lim- and now Michael Conlin. So great, uh, Comeback win for Conlon. Let's see what happens. He's definitely a wild card in the featherweight division, and will be a tough fight for any of the featherweights, including Gary Russell Jr., uh, Ray Vargas, uh, Emmanuel Navarrete, and the, the rest of the clan at 126 pounds. So uh, we'll see what happens with the with with the Irish star, Michael Conlon, later on in his career, going into late this year in 2023. Blair Cobb, Mr. Corner on the Cobb, I got to give him credit after getting beat to hell in his last, beat to the Smith of the reason in his last fight, comes back and defeats Maurice Hooker, and Maurice Hooker is now officially a stepping stone for all welterweights. He, he's never going to be a world champion, especially at 147 pounds. Neither is Blair. Blair talks a good game. Blair to flair. He, Got he've got the gift of gab, but he's not as good as the Virgil Ortiz's Boots Ennis, Errol Spencer's, and Terrence Crawford's world. That being said, impressive victory over Hooker. Both Cobb and conlon come back from devastating beatdowns in their last fight. Now, on to the main event from um Saturday night, Virgil Ortiz versus Michael McKinson. Virgil Ortiz is one of the top 10 body punchers in the sport. Um, One thing about Oscar De La Hoya's Golden Boy Fighters, be it Jaime Munguia, be it Virgil Ortiz, or be it Ryan Garcia, these guys all have great punching power. And all these guys wreck your your ribcage, go to your body, and they beat the hell out of your body. But all three fighters share the same flaw. And what is that for? Defensively, they are <laughs> putrid. And Virgil Ortiz showed in the first two rounds his defense is non-existent. McKinsey took took it to him first two rounds. First round, you had a nasty accidental headbutt that opened up a nasty cut along the left eye of alongside the left eye of Ortiz. And the first two rounds could have gone either way. McKinson, with his unorthodox style, was coming at Ortiz in that southpaw. He didn't know whether he wanted to box or be aggressive. But it was he, he threw Ortiz off in the first two rounds. You could have made a case in point for McKinson winning both rounds. I split the first two rounds, but I wouldn't argue if you gave either fighter the first two rounds. Beginning with round three, it was Ortiz. As he attacked that body digging hooks to both sides of his ribcage. And little by little, he broke McKinson down. McKinson stopped being aggressive and started moving more. Late in the eighth round, Ortiz landed a devastating left hook to the ribcage that dropped McKinson for the first time. McKinson got up. Kudos to Lawrence Cole, who I will be talking about later on in the sec- sec- in, in, in the episode when we when when um, I addressed the question about the worst and greatest referees of all time. He uh, allowed, unlike Murdoch, who last week was horrible in stopping the fight between Gary Antoine Russell and Rances Bartholomew, he gave McKinson the benefit of the doubt. McKinson survived the eighth round, but early in the ninth round, he went down from another hook to the body. Corner throws in the towel, ninth round stoppage for Virgil Ortiz. He's the mandatory contender for both Spence and Crawford on a couple of those criminal cartel boxing uh, alphabet soup of sanctioning bodies. If Spence versus Crawford doesn't get main, it looks like it could be Crawford versus Ortiz. I'm going to tell you guys right now. Virgil Ortiz has no shot in the world at beating Boots Ennis, Errol Spence, or... Terrence Crawford. He takes too much. His defense is very lacking. He takes too much punishment. McKinson is not a heavy hitter, and he landed several big shots against Ortiz throughout this fight. Ortiz is a seek-and-destroy fighter. And it's funny how Oscar De La Hoya was a great boxer. Oscar De La Hoya rarely went at you. He boxed from the outside behind a nice left jab, do combinations, and he would go to the body and land that devastating left hook of his when when the opening uh, presented itself. Uh, Ortiz, Garcia tries to box like De La Hoya. You could tell Ryan Garcia studied Oscar De La Hoya, and he tries to follow the same blueprint as Oscar De La Hoya. Garcia even has the bad habit of keeping his head uh, high up in the air. Like Oscar, you should do that. Was the biggest flaw of Oscar's career. His head would be standing up like an ostrich on top of his shoulders, on top of his neck, ready to get hit. But uh, one thing about Oscar, Oscar was a great counter puncher, and Oscar uh, would adjust that uh, that tall stance from time to time. And until not not until late in Oscar's career did he become did that style become a defensive liability. Garcia is a defensive liability. Right now, at the very tender age of his early twenties, Ortiz has a high guard, but he's so he's so enamored with with his offense. He's an offense heavy fighter that he leaves himself wide open for great counter punches like Terence Crawford and Ennis, for great power punches like Errol Spence and Ennis. He doesn't win any of those any fights against. Those three fighters, all three fighters, in my opinion, knock out Ortiz. We will see what happens in the future for Virgil Ortiz. One thing Ortiz will give boxing fans is excitement. It won't be a boring fight with him fighting Boots, but or the truth. The truth of the matter is he's not as good as those three fighters right now. Right now, the cream of the crop at 147, heads and shoulders above everybody. Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford, and Boots Ennis. Virgil Ortiz battling for that fourth spot. You want to give him the fourth spot? Go ahead. But it's very, very distant from the top three. You got the top three at the very, very top. Boots, Boots, Spence, and Bud. And then you got four on down at the very bottom of the ocean. And you could put Ortiz at the top of those guys that are gonna be uh they're gonna be can cannon father for those three fighters. All right. Now on to what has become probably the most popular portion of the program, the QA session. Um loyal listener Jesus Salas, Puerto Rican sports historian, uh and great wrestling fan, great sports fan, period. It's been, man, I tell you, man, when it comes to being a Puerto Rican sports nationalist and enthusiast, Jesus is right at the top of the food chain. He's got a couple of great questions. I'm going to start with the first round, first one. He asks, pick your top five reps of all time, and if you can, the worst five. Well, let's start with the worst five. Lawrence Cole is probably the worst referee of all time. Then I got to throw in Shana Murdoch for last week with his abysmal, abysmal uh, stoppage of the Gary Antoine Russell Bartholomew fight. You got this guy. What's his name? God damn. um uh, he he's a, a I believe he's a Louisiana referee Kenny, I forgot his last name but he's a horrible referee man. He every time he's on TV you, you could tell he knows he's on TV so he gets in the middle of the action. I I forgot the brother's name. I think it's a it's a could be a Creole Cajun type French name, but the brothers from Louisiana and he's very enthusiastic. You could tell he loves the sport, but. He gets in the middle of, 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 of exchanges. He wants his face TV time. No, your, a referee's job is stay in the background and make sure the fighters follow the, the, the rules of, of boxing, right? And and that you step in when you have to, not because you want TV time. Yeah, I, for, I, I forgot the, the brother's name. I'm not going to look it up. I'm not going to look it up. So you got Lawrence Cole, you got Murdoch from last week, you've got uh, my man Kenny, forgot his last name. Uh, another horrible referee, and I hate to I hate to call him out. What's my brother's name? Oh my God! What's the brother's name? The brother's name. His 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 um his wife put in a horrific scorecard in the first Triple E Canelo fight. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen. For early signs of dementia, I I didn't research these answers. These answers are coming off the top of my head. But goddamn, I forgot that guy's name. Anyway, you know what? Let me forget about the worst five referees because my memory is lacking right now. But you guys out there, the hardcore fans, know who I'm talking about. Uh, This man's wife was the judge that gave Canelo 10 rounds in there in his first fight against Triple G. Well, her husband is as bad a referee as she is, a judge. Let me go to my five greatest referees of all time. Cause this is this this is easy. This is very, very easy. You gotta go. Top of the food chain. No, I'm these are gonna be five. Any of these guys could be the greatest referee of all time. Arthur McCanty Sr., phenomenal referee, legendary referee. Refereed the first Ali Frazier fight. He has refereed so many legendary fights and a great color commentator. Check out his uh, check out the Larry Holmes versus Ken Norton fight with how uh, it's available on YouTube. Howard Cosell is announcing the majority of the fight. And then he brings in Arthur McKinney, who gives you a superb color and anna- a color com- commentating better than anybody not named Roy Jones today in boxing. Arthur McCanny, tremendous referee, tremendous announcer. Mills Lane, the judge. Let's get it on. Um, Mills Lane, another great referee. I give give Mills Lane credit. He disqualified Mike Tyson. In the bike fight against Van Holyfield, a lot of a lot of referees would have given would have let Mike bite him five six times. They didn't want to stop that fight because a they were afraid of Mike and b they knew that this was a major major fight. At that point in time, the largest pay per view audience in boxing history. Yes, uh, Mills Lane and Arthur McCanty are at the top of the food list. Kenny Bayless, I have loved Kenny Bayless his entire career. He's done a great job throughout his entire career as a great referee. Uh, Steve Smoker, Steve Smoker, phenomenal, phenomenal referee. And what I love about Smoker is that unlike Murdoch, he, oh, by the way, back to worst referees of all time, number five would be Lawrence Cole. Lawrence Cole is a joke. One time Lawrence Cole During a Juan Manuel Marquez fight, Marquez got headbutted and and was bleeding. And this was the middle of the fight. And Cole told Marquez, if you quit now, you're winning on the scorecards. You'll win the fight. And he got a suspension from the Texas State Athletic Commission and the entire United States for, I believe, about a year for doing that. The only reason Lawrence Cole got his position as a referee was because his father, Dickie Cole, was the longtime head of the Texas State Athletic Commission. Lawrence Cole did a good job last night. I got to give him credit last night. But 99 times out of 100, he's horrible. Just pathetic. Now back to my greatest referees of, of all time. I digress. So I have Mills Lane. I have Arthur McKinney Sr. Kenny Bayless, great referee, has had a tremendous career. Tony Weeks, another great referee. I love Tony Tony Weeks. Oh, that was the problem. Larry Hazard. Larry Hazzard, uh, former New York, I'm not sure if he's still the New Jersey State Athletic Commissioner, but as a referee, tremendous referee. Such a great referee that he came out of retirement. New York State Athletic Commission asked him to come out of retirement to referee the Pernell Whitaker-Buddy McGurr fight back in March of 1993. Larry Hazard. Great. And he also played Zach Clayton in the Will Smith, Michael Mann, Muhammad Ali movie, biopic. He played Zach Clayton, the referee who refereed the fight between Ali and George Foreman. Um, You've got others that you can put in the conversation. Arthur McCanty Jr. I love him. Uh, Arthur McCanty Sr.'s son. Enthusiastic referee. He, he always talks to the boxers Tells him, look, you know, stop the nonsense. Arthur McCanty Jr. should get more great fights than he's gotten. Um, Probably the best referee in the the state of New York for many, many, many years. Mitch Halpin, who unfortunately killed himself, did a great job in the first Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield fight. Stopped the fight when when Mike was on his feet. Um, Unfortunately, he... Shot himself in the head, committed suicide at uh, less than two years after that fight. Oh my God. He great referee, Mitch Halpin. He, he, had he continued, had he not taken his life, definitely would have been a Hall of Fame referee. The most un- overrated referee, in my opinion, is another member of the Hall of Fame, and that's Joe Cortez. Joe Cortez never never liked him. I'm fair and I'm firm. Yeah, that's another one who wanted too much TV time. I I never liked Joe Cortez. He did not impress me as a referee. So um, top five in any in no particular order: the McCanties, Arthur Jr. and Senior, Mills Lane, Tony Weeks, Kenny Bayless. You oh Steve Smoger. If you want to put him in the top five, go ahead. Uh, Mitch Halper would have been a top five referee had he not passed. Larry Hazard. A lot of great. There are many more great referees than bad referees in boxing. Thank God. Thank God for that. Now, he has another question, and this I believe this has to do with Olympic gold medalists. Jesus asks, in your opinion, which Olympic medalist had the most disappointing professional boxing careers? I'm going to go with two. The first one, and a shout out to my friend, from her, from her hometown, uh, my friend from Long Island, uh, her home, uh, probably the one of the biggest stars ever to come out of her hometown. It's Howard Davis, Jr. Nineteenth. Uh, by the way, my friend Sugar Shan, what's up? What's up, Shan? Shannon, how you doing, Shannon? Uh, Shannon Howard Davis Jr. Probably the
1: greatest athlete that ever come out of Europe. Neck of the woods in Long Island. Was voted the best
0: boxer in the 1976 Olympics. Now, I didn't see the 76 Olympics. I didn't start watching boxing until 77. But when I started watching boxing in 1977, that was right at the same time Howard Davis Jr. started his pro career. My father loved him in the Olympics. He won the Val Barker Award in 19 during the 1976 Montreal Olympics. That's the award given to the best Olympic boxer of that Olympics and the MVP of, of the boxing, the, the boxing portion of the of the Summer Olympics. He was voted the He was voted over the Sphinx Brothers and Sugary Leonard, and they were all impressive. That's how great Howard Davis was in the Olympics. Howard Davis had a few uh, close calls coming up uh, in his first 12, 13 fights. Um, he almost got knocked out by Norman Goings. He came back, dropped Goings, and won a close decision. He barely beat a, the very tough Villamar Fernandez in a in in what was a very tactical uh, a fight in which Howard Davis won and became the number one contender for the WBC title held by Jim Watt. And he went to watch uh, Backyard in 1980. He fought Jim Watt in the UK and Howard Davis Jr. Physically was there, but mentally was not. He fought a putrid fight. He fought as though he was a zombie. Jim Watt easily beat him over 15 rounds to retain his title. Then, in 1984, he went to Puerto Rico to fight Edwin Rosario in in a tremendous 12-round fight in which the fight was damn near dead even going into the 12th round. Davis was outlanding Rosario in the 12th round and would have won the fight, except with seconds left in the fight, he got dropped and hurt by Rosario. Davis made it to the final bell, but that 10-8 round was the difference in Davis winning. He lost and Rosario winning a very very narrow decision. And that was the closest Howard ever came to becoming world champion. He gave Meldrick Taylor his toughest fight as a prospect. Uh, Howard Davis fought to a draw with Meldrick Taylor. And then he finally got a third and final shot. And I believe the date was July 30th or July 31st of 1989. He moved up to 140 pounds. Um, same division in which he fought Meldrick Taylor to a draw. And he fought Buddy McGirt, another guy from your neck of the woods, Shannon. He fought Buddy McGirt in the Battle of Long Island. You can make a claim that these were the two best fighters ever to come out of Long Island. And Davis was done. Got knocked out in the very first round. It was a brutal, brutal beating. And Buddy McGirt knocked out Howard Davis in the first round. Uh, Howard Davis retired. Years later, he came back and made a very shaky comeback. He shouldn't have been fighting. Got knocked out by Dana Rosenblatt. Retired again. And unfortunately, I think within the last 18 months, he died of cancer. Way too young. He wasn't even 60 years old. Rest in peace to Howard Davis Jr. In my opinion, the most disappointing Olympic gold medalist from the United States as far as the other one from the uk audley harrison gold medalist uh audley looked like he was gonna be a world beater early in his career then he became canon father and he became a stepping stone uh and the low point of his career was getting knocked out in the first round by deontay wilder Audley the Har- Audley Harrison early on in his career looked like he was going to be that next great Brit heavyweight. It didn't pan out. So there you go, Jesus. Audley Harrison and the great, the great uh, Olympic star, Howard Davis Jr., uh New York, New York dude. Uh, I always root for the New York fighters. He just fell he just fell short. And the the Edwin Rosario fight. Was the was the one that he that he let uh, that he let slip through his hands? Okay, now
1: got a couple of questions that was e- uh, emailed to me. Okay, all right. Okay, from uh, nice guy Eddie, loyal listener,
0: loyal listener, great boxing fan. Eddie asks, hey, man, maybe you've covered this before, but I'd like to know what you think of Edwin Valero. I don't really much know much about him apart from his Wikipedia. Was his record filled with cab drivers? Was he actually good? Edwin Valero was a tremendous puncher, tremendous pressure fighter, who won three world titles, was very impressive in his toughest fight against Antonio DeMarco, tough featherweight junior, lightweight, lightweight, from the early 2000s, from the late 2000s to early 2010s, Valero looked like he was going to be possibly the greatest fighter ever to come out of Venezuela. Well, he was the best Venezuelan fighter, in my opinion, since Antonio Esparagosa, who I consider the greatest Venezuelan fighter of all time. You guys, will do your research on Antonio Esparagosa. That man was a beast. In my opinion, he was the Venezuelan version of Alexis Arguello. Check him out on YouTube, baby. Don't, don't, don't take my word for it. But uh, my word is bond. Anyway, back to Valero. Explosive puncher. The man was one of the most brutal punches I've ever seen in my entire 46 years of watching boxing. Unfortunately, his career and life came to a sudden end. He was arrested for the murder of his wife. And then the morning after um, being arrested for the murder of his wife, he was found hung in his jail cell. Uh, apparently, he committed suicide. I don't know if he committed suicide or if the authorities killed him. Either way, it was a well-deserved death for a son of a bitch because he, as a boxer, like I've said over and over again with Arturo Gatti, both Valero and Gatti died the same way, being hung from the ceiling. Gaddy in his uh, villa out in Brazil, the night the morning after he beat his wife and left her uh, splatted on the concrete floor the following morning, he was found hung with a belt in his villa. And Valera the night after allegedly murdering his wife. And by the way, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you ever noticed if you watch any of the ID Channel, Oxygen, uh, uh, A&E, any of those uh, stalker, murder uh, reality or or dramatization shows that whenever the wife or the girlfriend dies, that 99 times out of 100, it's always the husband or the boyfriend or the the guy she was cheating with on the husband. It's always an intimate lover. It's never some stranger coming across, all right, I'm going to shoot her in the head. It's always the significant other. So Edwin Valero allegedly murdered his wife. Yeah, you can uh, delete the allegedly. Anyway, he was found dead, hung in his jail cell, probably out of guilt. I don't know. All I know is the minute, he, the minute his wife was murdered and he was arrested for that murder, his career was over. And then he put an exclamation point to it by hanging himself in his prison cell. Uh, Eddie, I sent you a link for a podcast I did on Edwin on a, a, a few years back on another platform. You can check that out. I went more into detail about the woman's death and his career on that podcast. Now, and if anybody else, is interested in that podcast, uh DM me at Robert silver 5768 I don't like to promote other podcasts on this platform because I want to stick to this platform and this platform it. So if you're interested in other shows that I do, and I do several, at Robert Silver5667 six, six, or ask Rob Silver, as I always uh uh, ask for you guys to send the questions.
1: Okay. I think I got one final question. Let me see. Where we at? Uh let's see if I question. No, it wasn't from him. I'm trying to see. I don't want to... I don't want to... Where the hell is that question? let me see. Let me keep going. Listen.
0: Maybe that was the last question. If I if I miss out this question, then um I will uh I will uh revisit next week.
1: Try to make sure. I try I wanna make sure I don't miss anybody's questions. Okay. Long-time listener from all my platforms, Long Tran.
0: Long Tran. Here's the question he, he asked me. From your boxing knowledge, which fighter or fighters are the most overrated fighter fighter or fighters you have seen? I know Cesar Chavez Sr. will be
1: on your list. This will be a perfect segue to Julio Cesar Chavez. Uh... uh Historical
0: perspective, I'll be doing, but I'm not going to list Chavez as the most overrated fighter of all time. In my opinion, the most overrated fighter of all time was Jerry Cooney. Jerry Cooney was this six foot five Irish fighter from also from my friend Shannon's neck of the woods in Long Island. He was a destructive puncher with a left hook, but he was one dimensional. All he was was a big dude who could knock you out and add on to the fact
1: that he was a young, big, good-looking white guy. Let's call a spade
0: a spade. At this point in time, late 70s, early 80s, when Cooney was coming up, the media, the United States... Uh, national media and boxing fans were looking for that great white hope and they hadn't had a heavyweight champion that was an American white fighter since Rocky Marciano in the mid-19 in the early to mid nineteen fifties. Jerry Cooney was being, I mean he was being plastered all over boxing magazines all over New York newspapers because he was a New York product, and carefully They were putting him in the ring with old, old, and I mean archaic heavyweight contenders from the 1970s. He knocked out Jimmy Young, he knocked out Ron Lyle, and he obliterated Ken Norton in the first round in uh, May of 1981. And that shot him up to the number one ranking in the heavyweight division. He didn't deserve the shot he got against Larry Holmes. He beat stiff after, he beat old men. He didn't beat any of the real contenders. He didn't beat a Michael Dokes. Michael Dynamite Dokes and Jerry Cooney came up at the same time. And you could tell, and my my father talked about all this time. Michael Dokes was 10 times better than Jerry Cooney. Pinklin Thomas, also during that era, much better fighter than Jerry Cooney, but Jerry Cooney had something that they didn't have. He was white, they were black. I know a lot of you guys don't like it when I bring up race on this program. But look, I lived it back then. This was an abomination when I go into when, when he gets the title shot. He signs to fight Larry Holmes. June of 1982, almost 40 years ago, I went to see this fight at Madison Square Garden with my father on closed circuit. We were disgusted when Larry Holmes entered the fight entered the ring first the world champion entered the ring first we were disgusted when larry holmes name was announced first and jerry cooney the contender the challenger for the title was given the champions uh a traditional being announced last it was pathetic it was a slap in the face of one of the greatest fighters i've ever seen in larry holmes and in the sport of boxing, all to appease the majority white audience who, were, who put big money. His fight was a massive success on closed circuit because thousands of white Americans, white male Americans came out thinking that Jerry Cooney was going to win the fight. My father won, I believe, five $600 that night, betting five or six dudes $100, five or six white guys from his job. each, because they drank the Kool-Aid. My father said from the get-go, Jerry Cooney had no shot in hell against Larry Holmes. And Larry Holmes put on a clinic that night, a boxing clinic behind that jab, dropped Cooney twice, until finally Cooney's uh, corner, Victor Vallier, his his trainer, in the 13th round came in and stopped the fight. What? pissed me off was. Now Holmes was was ahead on all three scorecards because Cooney was deducted two points for low blows. The best punches Cooney landed all night were below Holmes' belt. He landed like six, seven shots
1: below uh, Holmes' belt into the family jewels as Larry Holmes would call it. So two points were deducted from Cooney and two points for the knockdowns. So he was behind.
0: But two judges had Cooney winning more rounds than Holmes. If you take away those deductions, Cooney would have been winning the fight going into the 13th round when he was stopped. Now, Holmes would have won the decision had the fight gone 15 because Cooney had lost too many points because of low blows and knockdowns. But what the fuck were these judges watching? This was a virtuoso performance by Larry Holmes. And he exposed Cooney that night. And when the fight was over, Cooney cried. Talk about he let America down. You ain't let nobody down, man. I Give Cooney credit. He went 13 rounds with one of the greatest heavyweights of all time despite his limited
1: ability. He had no business fighting Larry Holmes.
0: Right? The only reason he got that title shot was because of his complexion. Uh, as Cooney continued, uh, he... Took a, he took a long sabbatical after that fight, came back, won a few fights against nondescript opponents, and got another big, big money fight against Michael Spinks, in which he was favored June of 1987, another fight in which my father won about four or $500 for Michael Spinks' ring heavyweight championship of the world, and Michael Spinks beat the shit out of Jerry Cooney, and Michael Spinks was much smaller. He was outweighed by 30 to 40 pounds. He was uh, three inches shorter than Cooney. But Michael Spinks, great boxer, great counterpuncher. Cooney was tailor-made for him, and he he batted Cooney into submission in the fifth round. Cooney would come out of retirement a few years later to fight George Foreman. And Foreman, way past his prime foreman, obliterated Cooney in two rounds. Jerry Cooney's one of the nicest guys in the world. Jerry Cooney does more for Xboxes boxers than most, probably every fighter that ever lived combined. Uh, Cooney has overcome drug and alcohol addiction. Jerry Cooney's a good dude. I give Cooney all the credit in the world for turning his life around, for being an advocate for fighters like him, ex-fighters who've fallen on hard times. It's not his fault that Uh, boxing promoters, his management uh, tried to force him down the public's throats, and the public bought it, and he made a lot of money um, doing so. And you know what? Kudos to Jerry Cooney for that. But that being said, the most overrated fighter in boxing history, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Long Tran, is Jerry Cooney. All right, we had gotten cut off for a second there. I'm just making sure the mic works. Okay, my 28th fighter of the last 45 years, my 28th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, Julio Cesar Chavez. And I write, outside of African-American boxers, the culture that dominates the sport hails from Mexico. The most beloved fighter ever to come out of Mexico is Julio Cesar Chavez. Julio Cesar Cesar Chavez was the prototypical Mexican fighter. Great chin, tremendous body puncher, and an incredible will to win. These attributes, plus his winning world titles at 130, 135, and 140 pounds, all, all add up to Chavez being the 28th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Chavez... Turned pro at the tender age of 18 in his hometown of Culiacan, Mexico, Chavez won the vast majority of his first 43 fights in Mexico, with 37 of those wins coming inside the distance. On September 13th, 1984, Chavez rec- received his first title opportunity against fellow Mexican Mario Martinez for the vacant WBC Super Featherweight World title. Martinez was no match for the mental and physical aggression Chavez put on him. And by the way, I, yes, I got the date right. Just wanted to make sure. Chavez brutally battered his Mexican compatriot before the fight was finally called off at the end of round eight. Less than a year later, my father and I would see him fight on TV for the very first time. On July 7, 1985, Chavez made the second defense of his title against former 130 pound champion Roger Mayweather, the future trainer of his nephew Floyd. Round one saw Mayweather dominate by moving and landing crisp combinations off of Chavez's head. My father and I were fans of Roger and thought that he could continue to dominate the 23 year old Mexican champion. Our joy was short-lived as early in the second round, Chavez landed two consecutive right crosses that dropped the challenger. Referee Richard Steele erroneously called it a slip, called it a slip, but as soon as the action resumed, Chavez dropped Roger with another vicious right cross. A minute later, Chavez knocked Roger down again with a right cross left hook combination. That was the, that was the end, as Steele stopped the fight. My father and I saw that night that Chavez was going to be great for a very long time. Chavez would successfully defend his 130 pound crown seven more times before moving up to 135 to challenge for the WBA 135 pound crown against the power punching champion from Puerto Rico, Edwin Rosario. I was attending college in New Orleans at the time. Let me make sure I get the at the time. I was out on a date with my girlfriend at the time. When I got back to my dorm room, my roommate gave me a message to call my father right away. It was 2 o'clock in the morning when I called my father back in New York. My father answered the phone before before I could even hear it ring on my end. My father proceeded to explain to me how Chavez beat the living hell out of Rosario before the fight was stopped in the 11th round. My father said power punches like Rosario were dead meat for an aggressive stalker like Chavez. My father at the time said it would take a master technician like a Pernell Whitaker to defeat him. Chavez, after winning world titles at 130 and 135, moved up to 140 pounds and on May 13th, 1989, once again faced Roger Mayweather, this time for Roger's WBC version of the 140-pound world title. Chavez faced a much different test that night. Mayweather started off strong, just like in their first fight, using a quick jab and right cross to keep Chavez at bay. However, it was Chavez's body punching that ultimately slowed Mayweather down. After suffering damaging punches the second half of the fight, Mayweather quit in his corner after the 10th round. Just a few months away from his 27th birthday, Chavez was now a three-division world champion. After two successful defenses of that title, Chavez would face Meldrick Taylor in an epic encounter On March 17, 1990. The fight between Taylor and Chavez is one of the rare world title unifications fights back then. The 23-year-old undefeated Taylor was the IBF junior welterweight champion, while the 27-year-old Chavez held the WBC version. This was the biggest fight at 140 since the two early 1980s Aaron Pryor-Alexis Arguello fights. Like Pryor and Aguayo, the Taylor-Chavez fight would be a matchup of two of the best fighters in the world. Since I didn't have cable where I lived, I took my father to my girlfriend's apartment to see the fight. Taylor fought the first four rounds just like my father and I expected he would. He boxed brilliantly, landing at will against the always aggressive but easy to hit Chavez. Chavez was like a lot of Mexican fighters who were great offensively, but defense was not their forte. Chavez had one of the greatest chins in boxing history, and throughout this fight exhibited it. Taylor bounced one rapid-fire combination after another, yet Chavez kept coming. A strong right cross in the second round by Chavez opened up a cut inside Taylor's mouth. Chavez was able to land some good shots to both Taylor's head and body, but was woefully being outmanned in the first four rounds of the fight. Beginning in round five, Taylor made a tactical decision to make the fight an inside affair. Chavez was so easy to hit that Taylor took the fight to him. At that moment, my father felt it was a huge error on Taylor's part. My father pointed out that if Taylor stays outside, it's harder for Chavez to hit him. But by fighting inside, it gave Chavez more opportunities to punch Taylor with his club and shots. Between rounds five and nine, Taylor outlanded Chavez three to one. But my father was correct in his assessment. Chavez's club and punches were also landing. Even though Taylor had dominated the first eight rounds of the fight, both his eyes were swelling rapidly, and he was swallowing a lot of blood. Round 10 began with Taylor swarming Chavez with an incredible 20-punch combination to the head and body, yet it didn't seem to affect Chavez at all. Chavez came roaring back with thudding punches to Taylor's head. Both men then took turns snapping each other's heads back with one power shot after another. The 11th round saw both fighters again engaged in a savage display of infighting. Chavez was utilizing his hard chin as a major weapon. It didn't seem feasible for him to have withstood the incredible amount of punishment he had taken through 11 rounds. Taylor's face, on the other hand, was a complete mess. Both of his eyes were completely swollen, and he was bleeding from both his nose and inside his mouth. Taylor was also the much more exhausted fighter going into the 12th and final round. The 12th round was an all-out war, but it was Chavez whose punches had more power and snap left. Chavez landed several right-hand missiles, and with 24 seconds left, one of those rights badly hurt Taylor. A few seconds later, another right-hand knocked Taylor down. Taylor got up, and after referee Richard Steele ask, asked him if he was okay, Taylor didn't respond. Steele responded by stopping the fight with only two seconds left. Chavez won with one of the greatest from behind victories in the history of the sport. The stoppage was one of the most controversial in boxing history. Referee Steele was heavily criticized by boxing pundits and fans worldwide for stopping the fight with only two seconds left, a fight in which Taylor was comfortably winning on all three judges' scorecards. My father and I were both in agreement. Steele stopped the fight appropriately. When he asked Taylor if he was okay, Taylor stared blankly ahead and didn't respond. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Steele... Went by the leather of the law. Richard Steele did what Mills Lane would have done, what Arthur McKinney would have done. If you don't respond, regardless of the time left on the clock, they're going to stop the fight, and that's what happened. After his miraculous victory over Taylor, Chavez continued to reign supreme over the 140-pound division, including his September 12, 1992 brutal 12th round beating of Hector Camacho. In 1993, he moved up one-weight class to face one of the greatest defensive fighters of all time, WBC welterweight champion Pernell Whitaker. Whitaker put on a masterful masterful display of boxing, making Chavez miss all night while landing combination after combination. The decision... The decision was one of the most pathetic I've ever seen. Chavez received the gift draw and then lost his 140-pound title and undefeated record four months later on January 29th against Frankie Randall. By the way, this is a perfect segue to the Patreon podcast that I do on Fight Game Media uh, Patreon feed. For $5 a month, you can hear not only my series of the greatest upsets in boxing history, but coming up in a few weeks, the, the... now very controversial Hulu docu-series on Mike Tyson that'll be covered on the Patreon page with the Patreon CEO, Garrett Gonzalez. So look out for you guys. The bonus content, $5 a month. You can hear my greatest upsets in boxing history. I've done one every month since January. Uh, Frankie Randall versus Julio Cesar Chavez, January 29th, 1994, one of the fights I did a podcast on. And you can hear us break down the Hulu docuseries that starts in two weeks. And ladies and gentlemen, if the series is uh, is horrible, I will say it's horrible. I am not going to sugarcoat it. I will take this series to task. If it's great, I will say it's great. I call it like I see it. After winning back the title in an immediate rematch four months later, Chavez gave Taylor a rematch on September 17th, 1994. This rematch happened four years too late at both men, as both men were nowhere near the fighters they were in their first encounter. Chavez would stop uh, Taylor in the eighth round, but it was a very, 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 Underwhelming fight. Uh, Taylor was actually winning after six rounds. Chavez did nothing until about the sixth round. And then he wound up stopping Taylor in the eighth. Chavez lost his title for good on June 7th, 1996, when a young Oscar De La Hoya chopped him up like a stuck pig and stopped him in the fourth round. Chavez received two more unsuccessful shots at the WBC 140 pound crown. Substance abuse drained him financially and caused Chavez to fight way past his prime. Despite the latter part of his career being so sad to watch, there was no denying his legacy as one of the greatest Mexican and super lightweights of all time. He would finish his career with an incredulous record of 107 wins, 6 losses, 2 draws with 86 knockouts, cementing his position as the 28th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Fight Fans, if you have any questions, hashtag silver on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at, at Robert Silva five seven six eight. Oh, before I uh before I uh uh sign off, next week I will be covering Teofimo Lopez's comeback fight after losing his title to George Camboso's last year against Mexican um pretender, fraud fr- uh, fringe contender, fraudulent contender, Pedro Campa at 140 pounds as lopez moved up to 140 pounds my prediction lopez stops compa in four or five rounds this is a brutal mismatch compa is not even a, a he's not even a gatekeeper he's a fraud right he's built his record by beating up cab drivers and he's lost to two of them right <laughs> so uh my prediction: Tail by fourth or fifth round knockout, maybe even early, but I'm gonna go four or five rounds. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.